Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The Lunar Chinese New Year is less than uh, three weeks away, and this time not only Chinese are preparing for the biggest holiday of the year, but also some Latin American cities. For example, the Brazilian city of Recife and Iguazu have listed Chinese Lunar New Year as official holidays. It's probably not a coincidence that the China's foreign minister has uh, included some uh, Latin American countries and country in the Caribbean to his list of countries as he embarks on his first overseas trip of the year. Um, that is a tradition of China's foreign ministry over the past 34 years. Now, um, Mr. Wang Yi also went to Jamaica, as I said, a country in the Caribbean, where he met with the country's prime minister and foreign minister. So why are Latin American and Caribbean countries and China embracing each other? What benefits is that going to bring to you? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Rafael Enrique Zabeto, a Brazilian foreign expert at China International Communications Group, joining me from Beijing and from Shanghai by Niu Haibing, director of the Institute for Foreign Policy Studies at Shanghai Institutes for International Studies. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. So um, these Brazilian cities, uh, Recife and Iguazu, have made Chinese New Year official holidays for the city. And this is not the only place. We're also talking about Argentina, for instance, uh, which has been observing a tradition of celebrating Chinese New Year since 2005. And that's been, you know, over the past 20 years that's been going on. Is Chinese culture and China in general becoming more popular in that part of the world? Well, you mentioned Recife. I have something interesting to tell about that city. There is a famous Brazilian anthropologist from Recife. His name is Gilberto Freire. One century ago, uh, doing his research about the origins of Brazilian culture, of Brazilian society, he discovered that uh, during the colonial times, Brazilian cities were essentially Chinese in culture. Brazil received much influence from Chinese because of the, the trade between China and Portugal. It uh, passed through Brazil. Uh, and then so uh, Brazilian culture has many elements uh, in common with uh, China. And uh, I think this is one important point. And another one is, of, is obvious, the fact that uh, China has become the most important trade partner of Brazil uh, for 15 consecutive years. So um, Brazil is giving more and more attention to China. And uh, so those two factors combined mm -hmm. uh, make Brazil look at China uh, in a different way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, China is gaining more and more importance in Brazil nowadays. Mm -hmm. Mr. Neil, uh, is it true to say that Latin America in general um, if not true with every individual country, but in general, there's a trend that these countries are looking east increasingly. Uh, yes, uh, historically, there are many Chinese and Japanese uh, migrants uh, to countries like Brazil, Peru, Panama. Uh, but today, I think that there are more, more and more closer cultural and economic ties between the two sides. Uh, into, in last year, uh, there are around uh, 37,000 uh, Chinese visitors to Brazil. 
this is a great sign. Uh, there are closer ties among the people. Mm. And so uh, I, also I think uh, in China, there are a lot of uh, elements from the Latin American countries in terms of the sports, uh, culture, foods, uh, publications, film, a uh, lot of things happening. So uh, I, I think there are not only the economic ties, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you talk about people-to-people exchanges. Uh, actually, we found out it's not just that. Uh, over the past year, the year 2023, then leaders, including, um, you know, leaders who have uh, uh, st- been changed, of 10 Latin American countries, including Brazil, Honduras, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Venezuela, Barbados, Suriname, Cuba, and Uruguay. Leaders from these countries visited China on the heels of each other in the year 2023. Um, Rafael, how do you look at that intensity as a region traditionally thought to be under U.S. dominant influence for a long time. Are they seeking some kind of alternative or independence in terms of their foreign relations? Yes, actually, we have been looking for that for a long time. It's not something new. The fact is that the hegemony of the U.S. in that region is not a choice of the the people of Latin America. It's something somehow imposed by the conditions we face. For example, if you see the history of Brazil or of its neighbor countries like Argentina, Uruguay, every time we had a a government that tried to weaken ties with the U.S., there was a coup d'etat, there was something to to block that. And now we see China as uh, a partner that can not only give us um, good trade deals, uh, but also that can help to balance the situation in the region. So like we can negotiate with both the U.S. and China and try to get advantages from both sides and be more independent in the sense that uh, we don't need to submit ourselves to one side. Hmm. Well, it seems that the Chinese are doing something that the Americans are not doing, for instance. And Mr. New, I'm posing this question to you. I noticed that uh, uh, during Mr. Wang Yi's visit to Jamaica, um, the Jamaican foreign minister or minister of foreign affairs and foreign trade mentioned that they are actually in the building that's helped build, finished by China. And by the way, the construction company is from my hometown of Jiangsu. And... uh, you know, it's it's something very interesting, um, and that building was handed over in 2019. You don't see America helping, you know, countries in this region build their um, ministry buildings or roads. Of course, not that much, at least, and yet they complain about China, you know, spying on these countries or trying to control these countries. Mr. New, how do you look at China's relationship with Jamaica in this particular case, but in countries in that region in general, what is the style of China's engagement there? The Jamaica, Jamaica's case uh, tells us a lot about the achievements between the China and the Latin American countries, not only the big countries, uh, like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, but also the small countries in the uh, Central America and the Caribbean uh, region. Uh, almost all the Latin American countries and the Caribbean countries are showing increasingly great interest to deep their relationship with China. I think this uh, relationship is expand, expanding uh, very rapidly and also towards a more sustainable uh, direction, uh, not only in the commercial 
and trade investment sectors, but also on this kind of uh, public uh, goods uh, providing. Uh, by the Chinese government send a lot of assistance to the, to the regional countries to deal with the public security uh, challenges, uh, the housing, the children care, health care, uh, and, uh, but also uh, Chinese enterprises also showing a lot of strong social responsibilities to pay more attention uh, to the local communities uh, they relied on. Mm. Uh, so I think this is a great image change uh, for the perception of the Latin American countries towards uh, new China. Mm. Well, as we prepare for this show, we discovered that actually a lot has been done over the past years in terms of uh, uh, providing public good and providing public infrastructure under the collaboration between China and countries in the region. Uh, for instance, until last September, we found that there are over 200 infrastructure projects that have been completed. Over 100 schools, hospitals, gymnasiums have been built. Over 30 power stations um, have been built as well. And of course, thousands of kilometers of railway, roads, light rail, uh, built with the help of China, providing up to almost a million jobs. Um, Raphael, how do you look at these numbers? What exactly uh, are China doing for that continent? And what does those countries mean for China as well? For you, someone who is based here in China, what are you seeing? Well, I see that uh, in Latin America nowadays, we depend on China for infrastructure, you know, like uh, before the situation was different. Brazilian uh, construction companies were not only doing uh, that work in Brazil, but also in neighbor countries and even in Africa. And then the United States decided to act like to the, the car wash operation to uh, destroy, to break those Brazilian construction companies. And then uh, now there's no alternative. You know, so it uh, actually this attitude from the U.S. facilitated the access of China to the infrastructure sector in, in South America. And yes, the feedback from Brazil tends to be positive. I know, I know that uh, people say that the Chinese uh, build things uh, fast, efficiently, and uh, also China is financing uh, many infrastructure that is very needed in Latin America. Also in Africa, I met some Africans here in China who told me uh, how China is contributing for the development there. So, um, of course, it contributes to create a, a good image uh, of China. And also you see many state-owned companies uh, from China investing in energy, in, in social uh, activities in mm. Brazil. So how do you, yeah, Rafael, let me use this opportunity. There are accusations, of course, naturally coming from such close interaction between China and countries in that part of the world. They are talking about China making these countries dependent on China or China, you know, trying to expand its influence. Do you see it that way? Is that the only way to look at this relationship? Uh, I see it from a different perspective because the the Western countries they always like had uh, they grew up they developed their economy by imposing something by like the, for the colonization for example uh, imperialism but China when you look to the history you will see for example the ancient Silk Road was based in mutual benefits it brought benefits not only to China but also to other countries. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, when I see the Chinese development, I cannot see uh, 
any signal of imperialism or something like that. Right. What I see is that China is pursuing common benefits, you know, win-win okay. uh, cooperation. We have to leave it there. Many thanks for your perspective, Rafa Enrique Zerbeto, joining us from Beijing, a Brazilian expert in China, and Mr. Niu Hai being joining us from Shanghai. When we come back, is the foreign policy of the U.S. pushing the world closer to nuclear Armageddon with a record $900 billion in annual defense spending? Who makes this decision for the nation? My exclusive interview with renowned U.S. scholar Jeffrey Sachs coming up. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. U.S. foreign policy has been hacked by big money. In an article first published last December, the renowned American scholar Jeffrey Sachs argues that the U.S. foreign policy is a scam built on corruption and it is the urgent task of the American people to overhaul a foreign policy that is so broken, corrupted and deceitful that it is burying the government in debt while pushing the world closer to nuclear Armageddon. The article followed on the heels of national defense bills signed into law by U.S. President Joe Biden, which authorizes a record 886 billion U.S. dollars in annual defense-related spending. U.S. military spending already accounted for nearly 40 percent of the world's total in 2022. So how does the huge spending shape U.S. foreign policy? Exactly how corrupted is it and who are benefiting from the policies. I was joined from New York by Professor Jeffrey Sachs himself. He is president of the UN Sustainable Development S Solutions Network and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. I started by asking him why the US gets into one disastrous war after another. Why is the United States uh entering every one of these wars, trying to overthrow all of these governments and failing every time. Of course, I think the aim is wrong, but the failure is what is so incredible. The United States states a goal, uh, say that it's uh, going to transform Afghanistan. 20 years later, trillions of dollars later, complete failure of the U.S. objective. Similarly, in Syria, the United States tried to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. It created massive war, massive chaos, complete failure. It tried to change the government in Libya. It created civil war. It pushed NATO into Ukraine. It's created an open bloodshed. So I asked the question, what's going on? Uh, why aren't these uh, authors of this terrible policy long gone? The answer is, this is big money. This is big business. Uh, you mentioned the defense budget of nearly $900 billion, but there's a lot more defense or I would say military spending in addition to that. We have $300 billion on top of that in veteran spending. We have another $100 billion roughly in the so-called intelligence agencies. Uh, you add it all up, it's nearly $1.5 trillion, big money, powerful interests, Big companies like Raytheon, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, these are the military industrial complex companies, and a Congress which lives off of these companies for 
their future jobs after they're in Congress because they go into these companies or they go into lobbying firms paid for by the companies or their political campaigns are paid for by the companies. So we have a business operation, which is a disaster. Uh, it's extraordinarily expensive. It creates havoc around the world. It does not promote any real interests of the American people, but it's driven by money, by campaign hey. contributions and by lobbying. Yeah, well, these are pretty grave uh, statements you are making. Can you give some concrete examples as to why or how these Washington insiders or their staff or their family um, are actually benefiting from the policies that they're helping to churn out? If you uh, look at a, uh, a member of the U.S. Congress in the Armed Services Committees of the House or the Senate, they are receiving campaign contributions by the very companies that they're supposed to be overseeing. Or they end up as uh, senior managers of those companies when they leave the Congress, or their family members, or they become, or their staff become members of the lobbying firms of these companies. I remember a discussion I had with a congressman saying we should stop pushing NATO enlargement to Ukraine. It's only creating war. And he said, well, but it's okay to sell the weapons to them, isn't it? And uh, I realized that his job is to sell weapons. He's on the Armed Services Committee. And so he's pushing weapon sales. It's big business. And we need to get out of the business and back to peace and cooperation in our foreign policy. What's happened since 2000 is the United States has spent around $5 trillion on the wars since the start of this new century, $5 trillion. We have an extra $2 trillion that will be the veterans' payments because of the disabilities that have come from these wars to American soldiers. So $7 trillion. This is a lot of money, even for the U.S. economy. Yeah. Well, indeed, you wrote in your article that uh, hundreds of billions of dollars are money down the drain, squandered in useless wars, overseas military bases, and a wholly unnecessary arms buildup that brings the world closer to World War III. Well, some people would say it is a lot of money, but it is necessary to keep Americans safe, to, you know, service all the military that uh, are keeping the Americans safe, to provide for the military bases and to build more weapons. It is necessary, they would say. How would you say that these are money wasted? We're getting no security uh, out of uh, any of this. The United States is no safer. First, the United States is at no risk of invasion. No country in the world could invade the United States. We are at no risk. What is at risk is that the United States alone in the entire world has hundreds of overseas military bases. The United States has 800 overseas military bases in 80 countries. Now, those are being shelled right now because of the war in Gaza. Uh, so the United States soldiers are being attacked in Syria. But why is there a U.S. base in Syria? Because the United States tried to overthrow the Syrian government. The soldiers are being attacked in Iraq. Why is there a military base in Iraq? Because the United States invaded Iraq on false pretenses in 
March 2003. So this is endangering the United States to have this unique global network of overseas military bases. I don't think they should exist at all. It puts the Americans at risk. It costs hundreds of billions of dollars a year. It does not bring peace. It does not bring quiet. Every place in the, in the world right now where the U.S. is pushing this aggressive foreign policy is destabilized. Now the United States is trying to build new alliances in East Asia. This is, again, doomed to fail, in my view, but it is doomed to destabilize the world if the U.S. persists in this way. Um, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that the budget request by President Biden is a strategy-driven document ensuring that U.S. military is the strongest in the world now and into the future. How do you look at the view that military spending or defense-related spending is essential in order to maintain U.S.'s global dominance? First of all, I don't believe in U.S. global dominance. I believe in U.S. cooperation. Why should one country that is 4% of the world population say that its goal is dominance over the rest of the world? The whole idea is misconceived. Our goal should be safety, security, cooperation, and peace, not dominance. So the aim is wrong. Second, the United States is already spending more than the next 10 countries combined in military outlays. So we are provoking an arms race rather than addressing an imbalance. We created the imbalance, the United States. We have to actually enter into diplomacy to stop the arms race, not to exacerbate the arms race. So I take exception to the goal itself. To state a country's goal as dominance militarily or any other way over the rest of the world is already to state a wrong goal. Mm. Well, goal the American public, security to, yeah. and cooperation. The American public, the, the average American household, according to your calculation, has lost 40,000 US dollars in the past due to this uh, military spending and is about to lose 12,000 per household in the year 2024 if the same plan is going forward. And yet, Where's the public outcry? I mean, you talk about the few who may hear the truth, they may say something, but the great majority seem to be okay with it or they seem to accept it or have to accept it because they can't have it other ways. Why is that? Is that the case? There is no real role of American public opinion in foreign policy. Uh, recently, uh, the U.S. transferred more weapons to Israel for what I regard as Israeli war crimes in Gaza, but it did it without any congressional oversight. Uh, all the Secretary of State had to do was to say it's an emergency, uh, and then it was an executive branch decision. The American people do not support these policies. These wars have been very unpopular, even with all of the propaganda coming from the U.S. government. So this is not a groundswell from below. This is not the public saying, oh, Professor Sachs, you're all wrong. We want this. This is from the top, not from the bottom. And of course, if the American people knew more and understood more uh, about the facts, but they suspect it, they would be even more opposed. The American people do not want more 
arms shipments to think, Ukraine. Do you think your voice would ever be heeded uh, by those in power, by those about 1,000 people who are setting the foreign policy, or they just pretend that they don't hear? They understand every word, every sentence, but they're not hearing you. No, they don't want to hear, <laughs> that's for sure. But, uh, you know, still, it is uh, the responsibility of scholars uh, and the responsibility of those who see to try to help clarify, uh, because uh, I think that it can help. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not easy because this is not a set of policies put to a public test or where public opinion is the dominant part. A lot of problem in the United States has come that over the last 30 or 40 years, the entire congressional process has become very corrupted. Uh, each election cycle now is well over $10 billion of campaign financing by powerful lobbies. So what I'm saying in the military sphere applies, unfortunately, in other parts of our government, too. The American people know it. They're very unhappy about it. Most Americans think the country is off track, not in a good direction, mm. and that the political system is broken. So this is not a, a view that is uh, uh, unpopular or foreign to the American people, but it's not resolved because when a political system is broken the way it is, it needs reform. There are signs of a stabilized or efforts to stabilize the re this relationship, right? For instance, the military to military video call that was resumed between China and the United States and the summit, of course, last year in San Francisco. It seems that at least the attempts, the intention is there from the United States to stabilize relationship with China. Are you uh, seeing some level, some elements of optimism in that regard? I think the uh reason for optimism in 2024 is that in a political campaign, the U.S. will not, I think, engage in uh, some radical military adventure. Uh, that would be devastating politically. Mm. So uh, there will be a lot of uh, heated rhetoric, not very helpful policies, nothing very constructive, no breakthroughs, but perhaps will avoid the worst because of the focus on the political campaign rather than on the global scene. I think the uh, politicians and the White House will not want new global crises this year, but they won't tamp down their rhetoric or they won't aim for solutions very much. Uh, rather, they will focus on their political campaigns. Thank you so much, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, for sharing with us your important insights on these very important issues. Thanks to you. My pleasure. That's it for this uh, edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.